Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken, a channel dedicated to helping you navigate the life of faith in a world that sometimes makes that difficult. We're just getting started, but I've been amazed at the interest shown in just the last few hours. So thank you for tuning in. I hope this will be a blessing to you and to those you know who might be wrestling with what they believe. This semester, I've been teaching two different classes. One is called Becoming a Disciple Scholar, and we've been discussing how to balance the life of faith with the life of the intellect. We'll be doing a lot of that on this channel. The other class centers on the Book of Mormon and sticks with the Come Follow Me schedule we're all trying to follow this year. The internet is full of amazing resources to help you with that, and I'll be posting videos that go along with your personal study, though more, more focused on what the Book of Mormon teaches about navigating faith and doubt. Today, however, is the perfect combination of those two classes, because our Book of Mormon study for this week is centered on becoming unshaken. My sister asked me if I had somehow planned the earthquake that coincided with the launch of Unshaken yesterday. And though I definitely don't have that kind of power, I did see the relevance of this week's Book of Mormon study in the things we're trying to accomplish here. So we're going to begin with Jacob chapter 7, because I think it helps frame everything else we see in the second half of the book of Jacob. I'll be posting additional videos on chapters 4 through 6, but they'll come into sharper focus if we see them through the lens of Jacob's encounter with an Antichrist. President Ezra Taft Benson taught that one of the blessings of studying the Book of Mormon is that it exposes the enemies of Christ kind of like watching game film on the team you're playing next. Later we'll meet Nehor and Korahor, but today's archvillain is Sherem, the first antichrist mentioned in the Book of Mormon, if you're not including Satan, that is, whose tactics are one of the focal points at the end of 2 Nephi. But before I tell you about Jacob's experience meeting Sherem, let me tell you about the time I met one of his latter-day counterparts. According to this map of the United States, we don't live in political states, we live in cultural belts. I grew up in Mexamerica, where the food is excelente, and mis amigos hispanohablantes gave me a head start learning el idioma celestial. Later, for eight years, I lived in the Bible Belt, looking for ways to attach a Book of Mormon buckle, and now I live in what the map calls the Jello Belt, color unspecified. From the looks of things, it seems that the so-called Mormon corridor could fall prey to a two-pronged offensive, Bible bashers from the southeast joining with the unchurched from the northwest, leaving us and our Jello trapped between the Rockies on one side and wine country on the other. Where do we go from here? Those two imagined offensives are a pretty good match for the two main directions from which our faith needs to be defended, the religious on one side and the secular on the other. Korahor is a fitting illustration of the secular side, and Nehor is a good depiction of the religious, while Sherem may be the best embodiment of the kinds of tactics used to shake our faith, regardless of the direction from which it's coming. So let me tell you about my run-in with the born-again Bible Belt Southern Sherem. He didn't come at me with signs or shouts like the protesters who descend on Temple Square during General Conference. Instead, he began attending Institute, just like the other investigators the missionaries always brought to class. In fact, I thought he was investigating, until one day he asked if, he could talk, if we could talk after class. I said, of course. So he went to another room in the chapel and sat down, and he cut straight to the chase. He said, Brother Halverson, I'm not investigating your church. In fact, I'm an anti-Mormon, and I feel called of God to rescue Mormons from the delusion of Mormonism. And you're my go-to guy. You're their teacher. If I can save you, I can save them. I sat back and smiled and said, wow, I'm, I'm just flattered you think they listen to me. Yeah, go for it. And so we began a conversation that probably lasted two hours or so, in which he would pull out Bible verse after Bible verse, and I'd just talk about interpretations of those verses based on his theology versus our own. Until by the end of the conversation, he kind of waved the white flag and said, ah, you've done this before. I smiled and said, yeah, 
more times than you. But hey, you're doing great. We can continue the conversation anytime. Well, he came back to institute a time or two, uh, but then he stopped coming and eventually invited me out to lunch. Uh, we sat down and and he said, well, we, we, we talked about where he'd been going and what he'd been doing since then. And he said, you know, I'm finding it harder to save Mormons than I thought. I, well, pesky testimony. What are you going to do, right? And yet he then asked a question that floored me. He said, do you happen to have like a list of inactives that I could have? And I just was floored thinking, wait, you want a list of the, the weak and the wounded on the edge of the herd so you can pick them off? Sorry, my friend, we don't have a list like that. What amazed me, though, is that anti-Mormonism really is a cottage industry, with some people making the shaking of faith a personal mission. Thankfully, Jacob shows us just what to do in such a situation. His final chapter is worth analyzing verse by verse to see what we're up against and how to overcome it. So let's begin. The very first verse of this chapter, and now it came to pass that after some years had passed away, there came a man among the people of Nephi whose name was Sherem. Notice the detail that he came among the people. Some people suggest that this might reflect other inhabitants in the Americas. Well, I'm not going to get into Book of Mormon geography. Uh, we don't know exactly where it all took place. But we do know, uh, unlike earlier assumptions, that the Lamanites and Nephites inhabited the entire continent uh, of North and South America. The, the area was already pre-inhabited. And so some suggest that Sharon may have not been a Nephite or a Lamanite at all but someone coming in from the outside. Now, one difference about that is when people attack the church today, are we dealing with outside versus inside influence? I've always laughed thinking it'd be fun to rewrite the song Book of Mormon Stories that my teacher came to me, uh, told to me to say anti-Mormon stories that my preacher told to me. And yet, a lot of times, the anti-Mormonism we face is not coming from Pentecostal preachers or, or born-again Bible bashers. It's often coming from people that were members of the church and often know the exact kind of language that they could share to help shake our faith. In verse 2, notice some of the details here. You can start to see Nehor's, excuse me, Sherem's strategic targets based on the focal points that he, that he makes in his attack. Christ is the ultimate target to take down. Sometimes we, sent, we tend to think that anti-Mormonism is about plural marriage or about race and the priesthood, about historical issues in the ministry of Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. And while all of those things are relevant, the ultimate target really is the Savior Jesus Christ. Also, when other people attack things like, well, I remember on my mission, somebody attacking the historicity of the Garden of Eden, uh, turning it into a mere fable. And I remember thinking, if Adam and Eve is just a story, then is Jesus just a story as well? If there was no fall, would there be a need for an atonement? As you're trying to navigate crises of faith, see if you can figure out how your doubts are connected to Christ. As he says in the New Testament, that everything is connected to the true vine. If we have a dangling doctrine that's unconnected to Jesus, that dangling doctrine will eventually become a dead one. Well, our doubts typically aren't dangling doubts either. And sometimes it behooves us to think, how is that concern or question connected to my testimony of Jesus Christ? It also states that Sharon was, meant, was trying to overcome the, or overthrow the doctrine of Christ. Uh, we saw that at the end of 2 Nephi, chapter 31, when Nephi explains that faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end, is the doctrine of Christ. 
uh, in a class recently, we talked about the, the up and down uh, uh, process that takes place with, a, with the doctrine of Christ as we build faith in him, repent to bring our life into harmony with his teachings, commit ourselves and immerse ourselves in that kind of a lifestyle, and then receive the confirming strength and spirit of the Holy Ghost, which then allows us to endure to the end along those, along those principles. We also discussed that there's a reverse order when people tend to lose their faith. Something happens to eliminate the presence of the Holy Ghost in their lives. They don't do those things that would bring his confirming influence. Without the Holy Ghost, our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ starts to fade. We're not as immersed in it as we, as we usually are. And as a result, our behavior starts to change. We're not living a, a, the life of repentance. And with only faith, as the one thing that's holding on, it tends to weaken and fall away until something else is placed in its in its stead. We have to have some kind of organizing ism uh, to, 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 to revolve around. And so we place consumerism or commercialism or hedonism or secularism, any kind of ism to take the place of Christ in our faith. And once our faith is placed in that, then the principles of the of the gospel of the doctrine of Christ continue those principles from the fourth article of faith with faith in that new ism we begin changing our behavior to fall in line with our new focal point our new central organizing belief we then immerse ourselves and commit ourselves to that lifestyle and then we start seeking confirmation that what we chose was wise until it starts to wane and the process repeats itself in Sherem's case, his, his ultimate goal is to take down Jesus Christ. And in the process, or to get there, he's trying to overthrow the doctrine of Christ, typically through that reverse order. In the third verse, notice, again, Sherem's strategic tactics and targets. He's aiming for the heart here, trying to lead away the hearts of the people, and he'd already been successful at doing just that. Later, we'll see his attempts to target the head. But in, in this case, we see there's a, a combination. Section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says that his targets are the head and the heart. Those are, that, that's the definition of revelation in his, uh, as he describes it. And the adversary is going to make similar targets of those two body parts. We also see that his target was Jacob himself. This was the moment that hit me when this anti-Mormon came and said, you're my go-to guy because you're their teacher. As soon as he said that, I laughed inside and thought, I'm Jacob, you're Sharon. I've read this before. Let's see how it, how, how it rolls out. Knowing that Jacob had faith in Christ and was a person of influence, Sharon targeted him specifically, knowing that if his faith could fall, then others would fall with him. Notice also how diligent Sharon is in his efforts laboring diligently, seeking much opportunity to come to, to Jacob. As a kid, my favorite movie was Rocky IV. And to see the battle between Rocky and Drago and, and consider who is training more diligently, who's working harder to prepare for this match. Uh, those, our enemies, those that are trying to take down our faith, if they are laboring more diligently than we are, if they're seeking more opportunity to attack us, then we are to defend ourselves then we probably have a good idea of how this match is going to end up. In verse 4, we really start to see the targets shift to the tactics. Notice this important detail. Sharon was learned. There's a sense of intellectual anti-Mormonism. 
that uses the mind at the expense of the heart. And yet notice what we saw in the previous verse, where Sherem is focused on, on, is focused on attacking the heart, and yet he's going to use the mind, so to speak, to get there. President Ezra Benson once said that the people who have the hardest time following the prophets and maintaining their faith are the proud who are learned and the proud who are rich. Notice there's nothing wrong about learning or money, just like the love of money is the root of all evil. Perhaps the love of learning is what leads us away from the simple truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then notice how he used his learning. Uh, this verse is fascinating to me. He had a perfect knowledge of the language of the people. Again, this is where uh, ex-Mormon, anti-Mormonism becomes more powerful than, than those that are coming, coming among the people from outside. They know just what to say. He could use much flattery. He had much power of speech. And so by targeting the head, but in ways that would trigger the heart, that's where the power of rhetoric really comes in. My academic background, uh, my PhD work is in anti-religious rhetoric. At first I started just studying the ways that what, that people attack one another's faith, interreligious conflict, for example. But the more I studied it, the more I realized that there's a rhetorical aspect that, that really needs to be the focal point. When it comes to things of faith, there's no proof for it or against it. I can neither prove what I believe is true, and you can't prove that what I believe is false. Uh, and in that non-provable, non-disprovable realm, what are we left with? We're left with rhetoric. What can I say and how can I say it so that it's persuasive to you? How can I, what can I say that will resonate with the mind and the heart to make you think that you're wrong or, or feel somehow ashamed? It's a lot like the people in the great and spacious building. How do I persuade you? Aristotle said that rhetoric is the, the use of all means of persuasion. And Sherem is, is a, the ultimate example early on in the Book of Mormon of someone using his rhetorical skills to convince someone or to try to convince someone that their faith is, un, is, is unfounded. Verse 5 brings our keyword into, into play. Sherem's ultimate goal was to shake Jacob from the faith. Again, knowing that if he shook Jacob, the aftershocks would lead to trembling among all the Nephites who followed him. Notice that word. The scriptures talk about earthquakes in diverse places as one of the signs of the times. Often when you're reading the signs of the times, you have to wonder, is this literal or is it figurative? And usually the answer is yes. In this case, there are literal earthquakes, as yesterday's experiences in Salt Lake show. But I'm more interested in the spiritual earthquakes that we see with the shaking of faith. There are cracks in people's spiritual foundations that often will lead to a crumbling of the superstructure that rests on top. And that shaking is a necessary part of preparing ourselves for the second coming of Christ. In the book of Hebrews, uh, it says that the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. In, others, there's, in other words, there's a sense of needing to differentiate between what is well-built and what is not. In the Northridge earthquake of 1994, which took place about 10 minutes away from my house, yeah, I remember going home that summer and driving through my neighborhood and it looked like a war zone. There'd be a house that was left standing perfectly fine next to a house that was condemned, uh, police lines around it next to a house that was no longer there. Uh, a few months earlier before the earthquake happened, 
every house looked identically well built. But once there was a cause of shaking, you could start to tell those things that would remain versus those that would be removed. The Doctrine and Covenants mentions a similar truth. For whatsoever things remain are by me, and whatsoever things are not by me shall be shaken and destroyed. Sometimes this shaking that we occur, it can even be what Elder Maxwell once called redemptive turbulence. Sometimes that shaking can let us know, are there cracks in my foundation that need to be addressed? Are there ways that I can seismically retrofit uh, and, and upgrade my, my foundation so that I'm prepared for the kind of shaking that might continue to come? Uh, if we know that we're built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, like we see in Helaman chapter 5, then nothing need fall. But it's a but the shaking helps us know, are we really wise men and women built upon the rock? Or do we have sandy foundations uh, that, that need to be fortified? Notice something that President Benson said a long time before this, these, this recent rash of faith crises took place, even before I was born. He said, there is a real sifting going on in the church, and it is going to become more pronounced with the passing of time. We're seeing that prophecy fulfilled all around us. It will sift the wheat from the tares, because we face some difficult days, the likes of which we have never experienced in our lives. And those days are going to require faith and testimony, and this I thought was interesting, and family unity, the like of which we have never had. It might be the family unity of those who still have faith and testimony, reaching out to those within their families or circle of friends that are struggling that will make the biggest difference there. But this really is one of those times of sifting, of shaking. Notice what uh, Jacob says, though, in terms of his own response to it. He had hoped to shake me from the faith. And yet at the end of this verse, he says, I could not be shaken. In my opinion, verse 5 is the key to maintaining our faith in a world that is shaking all around us. In the face of someone purposely attempting to shake it, Jacob's faith proved to be unshakable. And here's how. Notwithstanding the many revelations and the many things which I had seen concerning these things, for I truly had seen angels, and they had ministered unto me. And also I had heard the voice of the Lord speaking unto me in very word from time to time. That's the reason that Jacob could not be shaken. Notice what was coming into Jacob's life. If if Sharon was aiming at the mind and the heart to remove faith, Jacob was fully exposing both his mind and his heart to the kind of faith-fortifying revelation that only come from God. Many revelations, not just one that I had back in the mission field and I haven't thought out from deep freeze ever since. Many things which I had seen concerning these things. The ministering of angels, which is one of the gifts and powers of the Aaronic priesthood, and the voice of the Lord himself, Notice this phrase also, from time to time. This was not a one-time experience. This was an ongoing conversation with God. It reminds me of Moses chapter 1, when Satan showed what might be suggested as perfect timing to try to nip faith in the bud. But on the other hand, horrible timing because of the experience that Moses had just had with God. If you recall, when God drops Moses off after his experience uh, with, this, with his epiphany, Satan comes right away and says, Moses, son of man, worship me. And, and Moses can see straight through it. He says, bad timing, essentially. I just had an experience with God. 
I had to be transfigured in order to endure it. And you, I don't even need sunglasses for. Where is your glory? Having that juxtaposition, that experience right next to the other, he was able to discern between truth and error, between light and darkness. It was crystal clear. The same is true here for Jacob. It was interesting. Uh, I had a different conversation with another anti-Mormon when I lived in Tennessee. This one was on a Sunday night, a phone call that again lasted, I don't know, two or three hours. He kept quoting Journal of Discourses to me and other scriptures taken out of context. And by the end of the conversation, I had other things to do and I finally needed to end it. But this verse was was reminding me of something. I said to my to my to my anti-Mormon friend, uh, I really appreciate your welfare yeah, or your concern for the welfare of my soul. Uh, however, your timing was a bit off. Today was Sunday. I went to church and it was awesome. In fact, today was fast Sunday. I've been fasting and as a result have felt closer to God today than I usually do. It was when we fast, we also have testimony meeting. So not only did I go to church and worship, I went to church and heard the, com the experiences of my fellow Latter-day Saints, seeing the hand of God, fortifying them in their own lives. Today was a bad day to have this conversation. Not only that, this is the Book of Mormon Year of Institute, and I've been more immersed in that incredible keystone text than I have been in years. And I feel more convinced in my head and converted in my heart to its principles than I have ever been. Uh, I don't know, maybe call back in a few years and hope that I've gotten lazy in the meantime. But for today, I'm feeling unshakable. That's the experience that Jacob is having here with Sharon. Because of the input, the intake of the things of God, he's able not only to discern the darkness as compared to the light that he's been receiving, but he's also able to combat it successfully. The verse continues, uh, or Sharon picks up right where we left off, though. Came to pass that he came unto me, and on this wise did he speak. Now we really start getting to see the rhetorical uh, strategies of Sharon. Notice his first word, Brother Jacob. There seems to be, in, in rhetorical studies, uh, Aristotle was the first to, to differentiate between, between logos, which is the power of the argument, ethos, which is the authority of the speaker, and pathos, which is the, the feelings or emotion of the audience. Sherem is going to try to work on all three. He's going to use the mind to try to attack Logos. He's going to use some insinuation to try to, uh, to, feel, to, to prey upon the feelings, the pathos of his audience. And here he's trying to establish some, some gentle ethos. Uh, I've, I've seen enough anti-Mormonism, whether it's... Uh, in, in internet blogs or podcasts to see that often those who have left the church will try to establish their, their LDS credentials before they get into uh, attacking ours. Often there's a sense of, Brother Jacob, I know where you're coming from. I have similar background. I was a seminary graduate or a lifelong member or the AP in my mission. Uh, again, there seems to be a sense of trying to establish uh, the, that street cred with the audience, uh, or to be able to make some kind of a connection uh, before moving into a less brotherly kind of approach. So, Brother Jacob, I have sought much opportunity that I might speak unto you, for I have heard and also know that thou goest about much, preaching that which you call the gospel or the doctrine of Christ. Again, a subtle ingrati ingratiation and then some subtle insinuation. Is this really the gospel? 
is this really the doctrine of Christ? Or is this just what you call, what you, what you assume it to be? In verse 7, we notice the pot calling the kettle black. It's Sherem accusing Jacob of having led away the people and of perverting the right way of God. Talk about a role reversal, that the person who's attacking faith is accusing his target of being the one that's leading people away. I've often found that when people are attacking others' faith, uh, they tend to take and stay on the offensive. They're the ones with questions, not admitting that they have anything to answer or explain on their side of things. Uh, they, want the, they want the opposition to be the one uh, constantly on their heels. Notice also what he says about uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ as Jacob teaches it. He, he accuses him of having perverted the right way of God by taking the law of Moses, which is the right way, We'll see similar things when it comes to the priests of Noah and Abinadi. Uh, and he accuses Jacob of having converted the law of Moses into the worship of a being, which ye say shall come many hundred years hence. Now, that's an interesting accusation, and there's both falsehood and truth to it. Uh, often those who attack the church will combine truth and falsehood into their, uh, into their attacks. So much of what they say about church history, for example, will have an element of truth, but it will be decontextualized or one-sided. Uh, without, again, allowing us to be able to uh, defend uh, the truth as we, as we know it in full. In this case, converting the law of Moses into the worship of a being that would come, that's exactly what the law of Moses was. The law of Moses, as Amulek will explain in Alma 34, every whit of that law was pointing to the great and last sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So it wasn't Jacob that was converting the law of Moses into anything. And if anything, it was Sherem that was reversing it to kind of pull back the law of Moses and take out its prophecy, take out its power, to, meet, to leave it as something that is purely ritualistic or moralistic, uh, as opposed to something that is prophetic and something that is divine. Verse 7, the tactics continue to unfold. Notice what Sherem accuses, or what, what he insinuates here. No man knoweth of such things, for he cannot tell of things to come. That was his issue uh, in, in accusing Jacob of having perverted the, the law of Moses, to make it into something that was future-focused, when Sherem wanted to maintain simply things in the present realm. Now, epistemology is a, a technical term that it refers to the study of knowledge. How do we know what we say that we know? And in this case, Sherem, like so many attackers of faith after him, are trying to attack the epistemological foundations of our faith. How do you know what you say you know? In this case, he's saying you can't possibly know this. And often when we bear our testimony or speak of spiritual knowledge, uh, often it's an epistemological undermining saying you can't possibly know that. Uh, the whole, they, they'll call into question the power of the Holy Ghost or the possibility of his promptings or, or confirming spirit, saying that's just confirmation bias or that's self-induced. Often when I have someone in my office uh, accusing uh, Latter-day Saints of self-inducing self the spirit, I'll just smile and say, then do it right now. Self-induce. Believe me, if I could self-induce the power of the Holy Ghost, I would be inducing all the time. I love the feeling of the Holy Ghost. The fact that I want it more than I actually feel it, though, lets me know, A, that I've got some work to do, but B, that it's not completely up to me, that there is a second agent involved here, and that's the Holy Ghost himself. Notice also the specifics of this epistemological attack. 
It's the fact you can't know of things to come. That would be impossible. It's scientifically un uh, Im Im improbable. Yeah, there's a denial here of anything that smacks of the divine or the miraculous or the supernatural. Thomas Jefferson, who was an amazing statesman, wasn't much of a, of, of a believer. Uh, he took the New Testament, which he considered an, an amazing example of the ethics and morality of Jesus of Nazareth. But he literally took his penknife and cut out anything that related to divinity. This is the supernatural, uh, the, the inexplicable, the miraculous, so that all he was left with was the ethical or the moral. Uh, as if Jesus were uh, a, a traveling ma uh, rabbi with nothing more to do than to teach aphorisms uh, or, or self-help. Uh, a modern day uh, or an ancient uh, Martin Luther King or Buddha, as opposed to the Son of God. Uh, in our day, those who attack faith will often do likewise, saying that I'll, I can handle anything purely mental, but nothing spiritual. They often will accuse Christianity of, of Christianizing the Old Testament uh, with those kinds of accusations. You can't possibly know of things to come. Uh, it's interesting even when people will attack uh, prophecy in the Old Testament and and post-date things saying, well, if this spoke of something that was yet to occur, it couldn't possibly have been written at that earlier period. Uh, any example of prophecy must be something written after the fact and then and then predated uh, to, to make it look like something miraculous was being, was being predicted. They accuse, by the way, Latter-day Saints of Mormonizing the Bible in the same way, uh, of taking things that we see as prophetic of the restoration and simply rereading the restoration uh, back into the Old Testament or New Testament. Now, we do believe that we can know of things to come. We do believe in the gift of prophecy and of revelation. Uh, so just because things, uh, just because someone says that you cannot know certain things, we have a different epistemological model. And sometimes we have to simply rest in that. Notice also, all of this was contentious on the part of Sharon. As the Lord makes clear in 3 Nephi chapter 11, contention is of the devil. So as we work with people that are struggling in their faith or even come to grips with struggles of our own, we need to make sure that contention stays out of things. Uh, to keep things peaceful and harmonious uh, so that the Holy Ghost has a chance of working on both, on both parties. Jacob's response uh, begins in, uh, or becomes clarified in, chapter, in verse 8 and verse 9. Notice what occurs for him. The Lord God poured in his spirit into my soul, and he was able to confound Sherem in all of his words. The first thing that we need to do to fortify our faith in the face of attacks is to seek the power of the Spirit of God. When Jacob opens his mouth, it is filled with words that would confound his enemy. And I have had enough personal experience in my mission and ever since that I know that that promise is true. Of all the things I think I doubted before my mission and all the things that I came home with a firm testimony of, it is the power of having your mouth filled if you have the faith to open it. Notice what he does when he opens his mouth. Instead of being on the defense of the entire time and only being there to answer Sherem's question, Jacob asks Sherem a question of his own. Deniest thou the Christ who shall come? It's, I think it's interesting. We need to do a lot more listening than simply assuming we know where the other person is coming from. And so if we're trying to 
help someone through their own crisis of faith, or if we're trying to navigate our own in the face of someone who's trying to undermine it, we need to do more listening than simply talking or defending. Where is the other person coming from? Often when I sit down with a person one-on-one to help them work through their, their crisis of faith, I'll do as much listening as I possibly can. I want to hear their stories. What do they still believe, uh, if anything? Uh, what is what is the what is their background? What are their experiences? What are their perceptions of those experiences? So that I can have them lay out on the table as many possibilities of for conversation as as we can. Notice in responding to the question, by the way, what Sharon admits to. He says, I, I wouldn't deny Jesus if there was one, but I know that there is no Christ, neither has been, nor ever will be. This is coming from the same person who just two verses earlier said, you can't possibly know of things to come. Well, this is the flip side of that. If, he, if he's saying Jacob can't possibly know of the future coming of Christ, how is Sherem supposed to know of the future non-coming of Christ? Uh, on, on the one hand, it, it's one thing to attack people's ability to know. It's another thing to uh, understand our, our inability to or our ability to not know. Uh, and, and sometimes there's a matter of, of a double standard, perhaps, uh, of one person accusing, you can't possibly know that, and yet I definitely know this on my part. Believest thou the scriptures, Jacob asks him. And Sharon responds, yes, he does. I think often in our conversations with people of different faiths or different viewpoints, uh, whether they're believers or unbelievers, whether they're skeptics or, or, or people of other faiths, we need to find common premises and a common authority. In this case, they were trying to make sense of, is there a higher authority to which we can both turn? Uh, depending on who your audience is or who your conversational counterpart is, that higher authority may be different. Uh, if it's someone who believes in scripture, then we can go there. If it's someone who isn't, then we can try to defend our faith out of the Bible uh, till the cows come home. And it's not going to do any good because they haven't agreed upon the Bible as a, as a common authority. Whether that authority is common experience uh, if the common authority is, is pure scientific epistemology, uh, in some ways we need to work within the, the, the constraints that a common authority can be reached, uh, and then hopefully strive to, in, to expand that common authority to allow for other epistemological models or other sources of truth. In this case, since Sharon did agree uh, to turn to the scriptures as a common premise or a common authority, Jacob could then point out his inability to understand them. So often as I talk with people who disagree with the, the principles of the gospel, for those who do believe in the Bible, often it's a matter of interpretation. Like I said in my conversations with anti-Mormons over the years, whenever they quote scripture to try to back me into a corner, I often will simply and calmly and non-contentiously respond, you are interpreting that scripture uh, in a certain direction based on your theology. We believe in the same scripture and we believe in the authority of scripture, but our theology leads us to interpret it in a different direction. What it boils down to then at the end of the day is who has the right to interpret scripture to begin with. That's where the power of prophets and apostles to interpret scripture uh, is such a blessing in the restored gospel. This is not all though, Jacob says, as he continues his, his response. 
I have heard and seen much. This is hearkening back to that key verse that we saw earlier in the chapter. And yet with speaking of what he's heard and what he's seen, this is calling upon rational experience, which is something that a skeptic hopefully would be more open to, to, to understand. He also mentions the power of the Holy Ghost. Here he, and he brings spiritual experience into the conversation. Again, if the Lord speaks to the mind and the heart, we should expect both the rational and the spiritual to coincide, that we can see and hear things that fortify our faith, in addition to the confirming spirit of the, of the Holy Ghost. I think often uh, conversations that I have with people, they tend to want to keep things neck up and have a strictly uh, logical, rational conversation. Uh, I don't try to make it into a, a strictly spiritual conversation. I'm kind of a head, a head guy myself. I like to understand. I want to, to rationally uh, understand things. And so often our conversations will be, will be rational, but it can't only be that. Uh, in, the room, in, in the realm of proof, when they speak of, of necessary proof and sufficient proof, the, uh, the rational is necessary proof but it's not sufficient proof. The spiritual at times can be sufficient proof in the absence of, of rational explanation, but we should also be seeking rational explanation to fortify what we already know. I think Jacob is a beautiful ex example here in this verse of combining the two, both the head and the heart, the rational and the spiritual. Also at the end of it, he, he adds his testimony. I know that without an atonement, all mankind must be lost. Uh, we should never use our testimony as a trump card or a get out of jail for free card. Uh, however, at the end of the day, that is where we stand. Uh, at the end of the day, I can, I can try to rationally explain things. I can share spiritual experience, but my testimony is where I stand. And whether they'll accept it or not, uh, that's, that's the one thing I can give that, that, can't, be, that can't be refuted. It came to pass that Sherem said in his response, show me a sign. It's interesting that often those with, that are struggling in their faith will demand some kind of proof. In our day, it's typically not the kind of you know, visible sign seeking that Sherem is guilty of here, or the adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, as Jesus said in the New Testament. Rather, it's show me rational proof. I want a sign uh, based strictly on, on empirical epistemology. I want proof that this thing happened in church history. I want proof that this is the true interpretation of things. I, I want proof uh, that, that, I'm, uh, that I'm right or that, and that you're wrong. And then he adds this, show me a sign by this power of the Holy Ghost. I think it's interesting how frequently those that are struggling or those that would demean or, or weaken our faith, try to belittle spiritual knowledge. Kind of a wave of the hand, this power of the Holy Ghost in the which you know so much. There seems to be a certain sarcasm there, a, a condescending looking down the nose. You think you know so much about this so-called Holy Ghost when these are just things that you're uh, self-inducing or, or seeking confirmation bias for. Jacob's response is an interesting one. What am I that I should tempt God to show unto thee a sign? I am grateful for Jacob's restraint, that he doesn't feel he needs to, nor should he, nor can he 
force God's hand in this. I think too often we we cavalierly promise that God will do certain things when that's not our place to do. It's one thing for Moroni to promise that God will confirm a sincere seeker in, in, in searching for a testimony of the Book of Mormon. And yet the Lord himself includes the caveat in the Doctrine and Covenants that such testimonies, such unveiling of his face, will occur in his own time and in his own way and according to his own will. And as we're working with people or working through our own issues and questions, we, we need to have that same level of restraint of allowing God to work within his will and within his own time parameters. Uh, we, we shouldn't tempt God to say, well, all you have to do is pray right now and you'll know. Some prayers aren't answered for a long time. Uh, some uh, will just read this book or, or study this article, look at this essay online. Uh, it'll solve all of your problems. We, they may and they may not. And I think we need to have the faith within crises of faith that the Lord will, will help us navigate and it will come in his time and in his own way. Jacob also realizes that even if I showed you the sign, yet thou wilt deny it. He had the feeling that Sherem already knew these things to be true and was, was afraid that, that a sign would not change anything. I think it's important as we're working with one another that we recognize the ineffectiveness of proof, so-called, that there needs to be a spiritual experience that we're not in control of. Uh, and so uh, even if we were able to give them proof, this is, reminds me of section five of the Doctrine and Covenants, when the Lord tells Martin Harris that uh, even if I could show you the plates, that wouldn't change your belief or disbelief in it. It isn't seeing as believing. It's believing opens the possibility of seeing. Uh, it's to quote St. Anselm uh, from, from the early, one of the early church fathers, this is faith seeking understanding not understanding, demanding faith, uh, because it doesn't, it doesn't go in that order. Uh, the denial was going to come regardless, most likely. And so again, Jacob responds, thy will, O Lord, be done and not mine. Uh, faithfully leaving matters of faith in the, in the hands of God. Well, the Lord did respond immediately in this case. And sometimes he does in our conversations or our, our uh, wrestlings with the things of, with our questions of the soul. Uh, sometimes it takes a lot, lot longer. Uh, in this came, it came immediately. And the power of the Lord came upon him. Uh, notice uh, the, the power of God versus, this wasn't convincing power on Jacob's part. He didn't prove anything. He didn't uh, talk him his way through it or use his own rhetorical prowess to convince uh, Sherem of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, he left it in God's hands and God took care of things. The power of God came. I'm amazed at uh, someone as intellectual as Paul, who was a genius to the point that we get so easily confused by him in his epistles, uh, that when he writes to the Corinthian saints, and Corinth is the next closest thing to Athens that we have in, in the epistles of Paul. Uh, these uh, these Greeks that are so focused on philosophy, Paul says to them, I determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Most of us don't have to determine to know nothing. Most of us, our ignorance comes naturally. But for someone as intelligent, as well-read, uh, I mean, he, when he's in Athens, he's, he's quoting their ancient poets in Acts chapter 17. But in writing to these 
these intellectual elites in the city of Corinth, he purposely determines to know less than he actually knows. And the reason why he says in that chapter is that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. In this case, Jacob follows that example perfectly, leaving things in the hands of God to, to establish truth. Well, the power falls upon Sherem and he falls to the earth and he's nourished for the space of many days. We know the end of the story. Sherem will eventually die and, and confess his mistakes uh, as, his dying, as his dying words. But I find it interesting that, that th those that were being attacked by him, in this case, were the ones that were trying to preserve his life and nourish him in the meantime. That's one of the great verbs that Moroni uses in chapter 6 of his, of his book, uh, that when people join the church, they are numbered, they are named, they are remembered, and they are nourished. And we need to nourish those and nourish ourselves for as long as it takes when someone is struggling in their faith. Often it's that nourishment that will keep people from dying spiritually. Uh, and if we'll give them that attention, give them that nourishment, uh, they may be fully recovered. We're nearing the end now. They gather together the multitude. Jacob sees this as an opportunity to confirm the faith of others. This is a story worth sharing. He speaks plainly unto them. Or Sherem speaks plainly unto them. A far cry from the flattering words, the rhetorical uh, tricks that he had used earlier. He confesses Christ. He confesses the power of the Holy Ghost. And he confesses the ministering of angels. It's interesting that that target, the what of Christ, he now establishes, and the how of coming to know him, uh, the epistemological model that he'd been uh, trying to attack this whole time, he now confesses its truth and power as well. And then interestingly, he confesses the ministering of angels, which is one of the things that Jacob had said was a source of his own faith and testimony. He also speaks of hell, of eternity, and of eternal punishment. Often when we come to a true understanding of things, it's the reality of consequences that will come most clear. He then says that he fears lest he committed the unpardonable sin. Please don't use that phrase to jump to conclusions that Sharon might have been a son of perdition. Uh, this deathbed remorse, I think, is enough evidence to help us see that this is not, uh, this is not the case for Sharon. He didn't he, in, in a way, it's, it's like Amulek. He knew, but he would not know. Uh, he didn't know enough. Uh, he didn't have enough light to sin against to receive that greatest of condemnations. Uh, instead, he expresses his fear, lest his case should be awful. His fear that he might have done this. Sons of perdition show no fear. They show no remorse, and therefore they show no hopes of repentance. I've often wondered, is it unpardonable? Is denying the Holy Ghost unpardonable because God declares that he will never pardon it? Or is it unpardonable because those who are guilty of it categorically refuse to ever repent? Well, for what I know of God and his infinite mercy, I think this sin is unpardonable on the sinner's part, not on the part of the judge himself. I confess unto God, and Sherem leaves us with that and gives us up the ghost. These signs, again, are show that there was something within him some glimmer of faith worth worth fanning 
and the same is true of those that we are, that we can work with. The power of God then comes down upon the people. Again, Jacob had seen this as an opportunity to fortify their faith, to strengthen others. It reminds me of Alma the Elder when he sees that Alma the Younger is in this spiritual coma, and he gathers the people and rejoices that this is taking place. Uh, he sees it as, as a chance uh, to turn a crisis of faith into a confirmation of faith. And I've seen some amazing experiences or had some amazing experiences with people who getting through their crisis and getting to the other side then become amazing sources of strength for other people. This is exactly what Jacob had been praying for. And uh, whether you're working with a struggling sibling or a prodigal parent or a prodigal child, uh, a roommate who's gone off the deep end or a, a friend or, or former mission companion that that has that is far far away from the from the faith keep praying request it of their father of your father uh, that they'll have the kinds of experiences and that you might have the kinds of experiences with them that might lead them back home finally peace and the love of god was restored my wife's an editor and i think if she pulled out a red pen she would mark was and change it to were because peace and the love of god are two things I actually love Jacob's grammar here. Uh, he, he's equating peace and the love of God as if it was a singular thing, and so uses a singular verb. Peace and the love of God was restored again among the people. They searched the scriptures, which is what would have helped from the very beginning to fortify their faith so that they wouldn't be deceived. According to Joseph Smith Matthew, a, a chapter about the signs of the times that is full of the deception of the elect, it's treasuring the word that allows us not to be deceived. And so to prepare for the, the, the next onslaught, they begin searching the scriptures like they never had before. Notice also they're doing all they can to restore the Lamanites. And yet all was vain, for they had an eternal hatred against us. I think it's interesting that just like peace and the love of God is a means of reclaiming people, hatred is the ultimate barrier to the promptings and confirming power of the Holy Ghost. I think there are times where we need to recognize, excuse me, I think there are times that we need to recognize what we're up against. And if there are people whose hatred is so firm against us, uh, all we can do is respond with love and peace and not try to convince them of anything until perhaps a time comes when their heart is softened and they're more open to those kinds of things. Nearing the end then, the people of God did fortify against them with their arms and with their might, trusting in the God and the rock of their salvation. And against the next time that someone tries to attack your faith, strengthen yourself, fortify your arms and your might, and trust in God. Again, do your part and allow God to do his part. He truly is the rock of our salvation. And if you seem to be shaking in your faith, build your house upon that rock and it will forever stand. Notice at the end also he says they became as yet conquerors of their enemies. Please don't get complacent. Just because you uh, survived or overcame one crisis of faith doesn't mean there may that there might not be more coming in the future. So continue to fortify yourself and continue to trust in God and build upon that rock and you will hopefully not just as yet be conquerors but forever be conquerors. Jacob then ends his book, and this incredible prophet, one of the most sensitive souls we'll meet in the Book of Mormon, gives us his final farewell. I have written according to the best of my knowledge, he admits, 
similar to what Nephi admitted at the very beginning of his book, that he's writing according to his knowledge, uh, that these are that these scriptures uh, have so much evidence of the divine, but also have evidence of the human, that both God's and prophet's fingerprints are all over them. And so Jacob is here admitting, I've done the best that I possibly can. Our lives passed away like as it were unto us a dream. Uh, just this, is this, what have I gone through? Has this all been real? He describes him and his people very sensitively, according to his character, as a lonesome and a solemn people, wanderers cast out of Jerusalem, born in tribulation, in a wilderness, hated of our brethren, wherefore we did mourn out our days. That description of his people is a near echo of the self of a self-description he could have given based on what Lehi said to him when he gave him his final blessing back in 2 Nephi chapter 2. Jacob was the firstborn in the wilderness. He was a son born in tribulation. And in many ways then, he has such a similar experience and more perfect empathy for his people than even his older brother Nephi did, who knew of things before such wilderness tribulations took, took place. Wherefore, we did mourn out our days. Jacob is the one who speaks most frequently of anxiety. Uh, with the, our, our own family has a history of mental illness, and, and as we struggle or suffer through difficulties, uh, Jacob has become somewhat of a family hero, uh, as he speaks very frequently of the anxieties of his soul and the mourning out of his days. So to the reader, he then finally bids farewell hoping that many of my brethren may read my words. And then his final message, brethren, adieu. Anti-Mormons have had a field day with that final word of the book of Jacob, saying, how on earth is a French word appearing in a so-called Reformed Egyptian text? I have no idea what actual word was on the gold plates at that moment, where Jacob laid down his stylus and stopped engraving. But there is power in the word adieu, that is different than what we would simply say of goodbye. Uh, there is even an entry in Webster's original American dictionary in 1828. Interestingly, the word goodbye does not appear in the dictionary, uh, other than as a as a side note under the under the entry for bye. But under adieu, there is its it has its own entry. Uh, therefore, in Joseph Smith's day, even non-French speaking Americans could say adieu as a farewell, as a commendation to the care of God, as an everlasting blessing being left upon on the person that is, that is departing. Again, if I know anything about the sensitive spirit of Jacob, who's one of my personal heroes, this seems so fitting for him based on his personality. Uh, Nephi, how does he end? Firm unflinching, unbending, obedient Nephi ends his book with, I must obey. Amen. Mr. Go and Do himself is true to his personality to the very end. And his younger brother, Jacob, is similar. Is similar. Uh, he who says, my beloved brethren, more than anyone else in the Book of Mormon, ends with this magnificent parting blessing. Brethren, Adieu. I leave you with my parting blessing as well in the form of points to ponder. This would be an amazing place to pause the video 
and look over some of these questions to increase your understanding or to uh, deepen your, your appreciation for the principles we've discussed today. There are such truths in the scriptures, and so many of them come not as your eyes are moving across the page, but as your heart and mind are moving across personal experience, as you allow what Elder Maxwell called a sermon from the pulpit of memory uh, to be preached to you. Now, I hope you'll take advantage of some of these questions to ponder the beautiful things that we've talked about from Jacob chapter 7 today. He is such an example of being unshaken. And it's my hope and prayer that we can all follow his example in the face of antichrists or anti-faith so that our faith can become unshaken as well. As always, thank you for tuning in today to this episode of Unshaken. Uh, if you found it helpful at all, or you think it might be helpful to those who may be struggling in their faith, I encourage you to like and subscribe, to comment and to share, to keep our, our conversations going. Bless you and may your faith be unshaken.